You are listening to the Enormo Cast. The specter of the holidays is upon us. And whether you celebrate Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, Festivus, or the birth of little baby Jesus, Black Diamond presents Gifts for the Send for all your gift-giving needs. Now I know that almost nobody is sending anything but a holiday hangover on December 26th. But Black Diamond can help you give your friends, family, and even grandma the right tools to sit next to that yuletide log and dream of sending their big adventure in the new year. And let me tell you, there's nothing like a shiny bit of kit from BD to put a wistful look on your snoring grandma's face as she dreams of hand jams, perfect sticks, and knee-deep powder in the coming decade. So give the gift of supporting the Enormacast this holiday season by going to blackdiamondequipment.com to find gear and apparel for rock climbing, ice climbing, skiing, and everything up to, but not including, Yule Logs. Hey folks, if you want to give great gifts and remember the old Enormacast too this holiday season, then fill those stockings with goods from our independent sponsors. Hey, hey, enough with the sleigh bells, dude. Yeah, take a break. Anyway, remember, entering Enormo at PeterWGilroy.com gets you a discount on great climbing-inspired jewelry, hats, and accessories. Entering Enormo at BonfireCoffee.com gets you a discount on delicious, fresh-roasted coffee. And entering EnormaCast at BelaySpecs.com gets you a cure for BMP caused by DPD. Or just go to EnormaCast.com and click on any of the banners if you get confused, and maybe check out our shop while you're there. All these folks are small players with big hearts that appreciate your business much more than, say, Jeff Bezos or the Waltons. And of course, the royal we here at the EnormaCast appreciate it too. All right, cue the bells. Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in town? You, you playing here? We're doing the, uh, the Normo Dome, whatever it is. It's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, big house. place outside of town. Very That's a big nice. place. You sold it. That's my house. You really should. Look, you better get up there before you panic. Those pens are loose. You're very good. I have really enjoyed having them with you. We'll make it. I don't think so. But we shall continue with style. Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment, with support from Maxim Ropes. And the fine folks at La Sportiva. And now back to the show. Hello and welcome to the Enormacast. This is your host, Chris Kalous. It is December 5th, 2019, about 10 o'clock here in Colorado, and this is episode 188 of the Enormacast. A conversation with alpinist Jason Kruk, a Canadian. We're having another Canadian on the show. And this one's been a long time coming. Jason and I have been talking about doing this almost for the entire existence of the Enormacast because, uh, as many of you know, Hayden Kennedy was on a very early episode of the podcast. I think the sixth and seventh episodes were the Saratory episodes where uh, we talked about them chopping 
the tower. And not long after that, I had started talking to Jason about coming on and kind of giving his side of the story since he was the other half of that duo for that uh, particular climb and international incident. Uh, But it just never happened. And we just kind of never crossed paths. That's the tricky thing about doing this thing face to face is you got to cross paths with time to do it and a place to do it and uh, the psych to do it. But I ended up in Squamish this summer, as you guys know, if you've been listening, and I got this one up there. And in addition to uh, doing the Normcast, it was just really great to see Jason again, actually. I hadn't seen him in a long time, and we'd only communicated remotely. So uh, it was it was pretty awesome just to uh, just to hang out with the guy, and I think you get a feel for that in the conversation. And uh, during the conversation, we we talk quite a bit about Hayden Kennedy, our mutual friend, and it gets a little soppy in there for a few minutes, which you know it's just just the way these conversations go. I'm not going to hide that. And um, and we end up talking about Saratori and chopping the compressor route and, and the fallout from that, but. I realized in editing it, we kind of like ease into it as if everybody listening knows what the hell we're talking about, which, uh, you know, kind of is also part of the feel of the show that, that, that we're all kind of on board with the knowledge about the same things. But, um, but yeah, when we get into that, we're talking about the fact that uh, Hayden Kennedy and, and Jason Crook climbed Saratori by fair means in their eyes and, uh, and then ended up on the way down chopping at least the top few pitches of the infamous Cesare Maestri's compressor route, which had stood as sort of a symbol of how not to climb a mountain for, uh, for decades. So if you want more background on that, once you hear that story, you can go all the way back to the beginning and listen to Hayden talk about it. Um, also in one of the Kelly Cordes episodes, we, we get into it because uh, it's addressed in Kelly Cordes's book, The Tower. So go back and check that out. It's all over the Normacast, the whole compressor root chopping thing, as well as the internet. Uh, but it's interesting to talk to Jason because it seemed like such a big deal when it happened, but really at all, I feel like it's kind of smoothed out and gone by the wayside. So we finally get Jason's perspective on it, uh, as well as a whole bunch of other stuff. So I guess we'll just kind of uh, roll right into it this time around. Not much business to talk about. It's a dark time here in Colorado, and it's been uh, particularly dark at least in the last week or so. And I, for one, am looking forward to the winter solstice where we turn back towards the light, at least here in the northern hemisphere. You southern hemisphere people are just basking in it right now. Hopefully, if you guys are feeling the dark time, whatever the dark time is, however it manifests itself to you, uh, hopefully the uh, Norma Cast can help get you through. I know it has... For some folks out there, I hear about it once in a while. All right, let's do this. A conversation with my friend, climber Jason Crook. Hey, what's up? It's your toes talking here. That's a nice alpine climb you got there. I'd hate to see something happen to it. Like when we get cold, life gets pretty miserable, eh, hot shot? Instead of a ballerina up there, you feel like a walrus. Not a svelte walrus who swims all day, but one of them big ones who lets seagulls crap on them. And if we ever do warm up again, well, get ready to howl like a banshee. And not a cool banshee that scares everybody, but one of them banshees the other banshees make fun of for sounding stupid. So get with it, buddy, and get some sick mountain boots from Sportiva. That's right, Italian made. 
so high tech they're like, what? Oh, we gotta go? All right, just listen to your toes and check out all of Sportiva's ice climbing and big mountain boots at sportiva.com or your local shop and tell them your toes sent you. That's actually a, a good place to start. Yeah. The, the Delica. Yeah, sure. Yeah, tell, tell me about what you drove up here. These things are fascinating, these these vehicles. Uh, you only see them in, in the North America. You only really see them in Canada. Oh, yeah. I guess, yeah, I guess there is a now a growing market in the States for them. But it's kind of a thing around here. There's a bit of a club of Delica drivers. We're all a little bit weird, but in a good way. And they're just super practical. I mean, if you like vans, which climbers do, if you live around here, you kind of need a four-wheel drive vehicle. So it's kind of the most practical thing going. It'll get anywhere. It doesn't go fast. That's kind of why I was a little bit late showing up, but it's <laughs> it's pretty badass. Is it diesel? Yeah, it's diesel. All right. Yeah. All right. But uh, I know there. I know there's a little cult following down there. They kind of actually remind me of of like jacked up. I would drive a Previa. Yeah, of a course. jacked up like jacked up Previa. Yeah, well, kind of like what they they look like to me. The newer oh, totally. ones, especially. No, it's definitely of the same spirit as the Previa, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, there's a there's a some sort of. Squamish. Squamish, loud vehicle going by. Anybody who's like been watching my Instagram knows that we've been having trouble with the noise up here. So you're going to hear it all over this podcast. Um, but yeah, so I, I was kind of like wondering where, where we should start. And, and I've interviewed one of your close compatriots that you grew up with, uh, Will Stanhope. Yeah, of course. And uh, and the, 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 the meetings all are the same story, basically. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I mean, maybe like you... you tell it from your perspective um oh, that, that that indian creek trip basically yeah or at least it was that indian creek was only part of you guys's trip yeah it was that was kind of our first major road trip as climbers you know we climbed together really early on and that was our first big road trip out of high school and the creek was when we met you and <laughs> that was definitely uh high watermark i think early on in terms of just total awesome cragging vibes and camp vibes and just scene you know it was really really a special thing for us and i was a much different guy back then and you know those kind of experiences certainly shaped me into who i am now mm -hmm. and uh yeah thank you for just being so cool uh back then that was awesome <laughs> And, uh, yeah. We had a good crew. Like, totally. Uh, you could still camp up on the slabs, um, but like on the way to the Bridger Jacks, not all the way back by the Bridger Jacks. And um, that's all been closed down now. But, uh, but yeah, it was kind of an eclectic crew. Nobody was really any sort of hot shot, like amazing climber, um, but everybody was kind of getting it done. It was, it, it was a pretty fun group of people, actually, that I remember. Coming and going, like people came and went. From, from the crew, yeah. Totally. And what's interesting, uh, looking back now, is that that was literally one of our first experiences like that. And it was just so awesome. And I didn't realize at the time just how special that whole scene was in that crew. It's really cool. Right on. Yeah, yeah, it was really cool. Yeah, and it was, um, I think I was like putting up new routes. You guys were kind of coming and climbing them as yeah, well. Yeah, dude, you were totally were. Yeah, and uh, and that was the trip too, where um, Didier was around, of course. Yeah, and doing and doing his thing, yeah. and uh, and did um, 
That was the trip where we did uh, learning, learning to, to fly. fly. Yeah, of course. and he fired it, and um, I never did uh, on that trip. But I did. I actually ended up doing that yeah, se- yeah. seven years later. I know. Yeah, so. I know that about <laughs> I was you. Stoked. Yeah, yeah. It took a little while, but uh, but yeah. So um, yeah, it was a good trip. So you guys were like seventeen and eighteen at that point. Yeah, I turned eighteen on that trip. Right on. Yeah, yeah. and you just and will turn nineteen. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so you guys were just on a road trip. That's like, right. Filled up a van and, and headed south of the border. And you grew up up here where we are now because we're sitting in Squamish. At the yeah, I, I was born in North Vancouver, just okay. down the road. So was Will. And we weren't in the same high school, but we both were in the climbing gym a lot on the climbing team. And then that kind of wasn't our thing around 14 15 mm-hmm. and uh we were already super super into rock climbing and doing everything we could to get up here by age 13 i was literally doing everything i could to get up here and uh 14 and 15 will and i climbed the grand wall for the first time and we took his dad so he could give us a ride and he was more of a liability on the climb than a real asset to us he literally just drove us there and we climbed with him. It was awesome. Like Rob is amazing. He's like a prince of a human, but you know, he'd probably agree with me with that statement. Um, but it was classic. You know, we met Colin Moorhead and his dad, who is uh, six turning 60 uh, on that day. And they celebrated by climbing the grand wall. Uh-huh. Uh, Brian had done it, you know, on aid years and years ago. And, uh, you know, Colin is, uh, the owner of Squamish rock guides here. So, um, and you know, pro- uber prolific new router. So right. it was pretty cool experience. I think myself or maybe will like urinated on Colin's rope on a ledge somewhere. And he was like really cool about it, I think. <laughs> but yeah, it was just classic. Like, uh, yeah, it was awesome. I, I meet, you know, 14 year old kids nowadays and I just, um, so shocked that like we were kids basically you know it was like totally negligent and kind of out there like our first experiences around here because we didn't have that many people in the community in Squamish that wanted to hang out with us or we were too shy to ask them so we were literally just using the guidebook and kind of ticking off the next classic and you know we did have uh, our coaches that from the climbing team in North Vancouver that would kind of guide us, uh, you know, from a distance onto, you know, maybe what the next route you know, for our progression was, but they weren't really on that program. You know, they were coaching the competitive climbers, right. and, you know, they were our buddies, but you know, we, we weren't paying them to be our, our coach anymore. They were our friends, but, uh, they did a good job with mentoring us, but you know, we were kind of on our own. Yeah. So where did you, I mean, obviously you're climbing in a gym, but so where did you learn how to climb outdoors? Where did you learn how to place gear? So just by trial by fire? Or well, did no, you have some options there. We will and myself and our two buddies, uh, two Davids, David Nickerfork and Curry, uh, we were kind of the four around the same age that were all interested in rock climbing. Um, and our coach, Andrew Wilson, uh, basically got us together and hooked us up with a local guide, Sheila Sovereign. And she basically took us out and taught us the ropes a little bit, mm-hmm. uh, how to place gear. You know, we did some weeding in the smoke bluffs here. And uh, then we went over to her house and 
ate ice cream and watched Hard Grit. Um, and, uh, you know, we were super young at the time and they kind of gave us a fairly, in, you know, formal debrief for being kids about, you know, how serious outdoor trad leading was. And so that was kind of our first uh, exposure to it. And Will's dad had a rack because he was a bit of a climber. And so that was perfect. Like we could just basically stole that. And, you know, Will was a year older. And mm -hmm. so we did everything we could to get up here. You know, I had a, a super long list of friends. I knew adults that could drive and before up, you know, approaching the weekend, we would just like literally call every single person and like, are you going to scholarship? Like, can we get a ride? Like, right. and, uh, thinking back now, it just seems ridiculous and you it just wouldn't happen this day and age. Like there's a, obviously an app for that now, right? you know, like, but it, it, looking back also, I was like, super, it was super hard for us to get a ride up here. And I'm surprised because like, I would be so stoked. Like any, you know, 14 year old kid that was like, can I get a ride? Can I, I'd be like, yes, like you're coming. Like, I'm, yes, you know, but I guess, you know, we were kids and yeah. Well, I mean, it's like, it's hard to kind of remember. And even then, and that wasn't that long ago, you know, what are we talking like 13, 14 years ago, um, 15 years ago, round number, but uh, it, it was an adult sport, you know, like the gyms have introduced like this whole echelon of kids who crank. Oh, totally. But, it, you know, especially big root climbing, multi-pitch climbing, track climbing it is an adult sport. You didn't really... See, I mean, I oh, guess totally. in a lot of ways you still don't see that many like really young kids, just the two of them together out there climbing these freaking slabs and, no, and cracks, you know. It's true. Our first like member of the Squamish climbing community that was our mentor was Jeremy Blumel. And uh, he took us to a friend's bar, a friend of his barbecue, uh, another uh, climber, Sean Easton and his partner. And we went over there and there's a lot of climbers there. And Sean was like, Jeremy, why did you bring your clients to my barbecue? Because <laughs> he thought that Jeremy was guiding us all right, day. Right. And Jeremy was like, Sean, these kids just climbed you all today. And Sean was like, well, you know, it's like Sean definitely couldn't climb you all, you know, like, <laughs> so it was, uh, yeah, props to Jeremy for eventually, you know, we found him after a few years and uh, he really helped us out in the early years. He was a good buddy and mentor. Right. Well, the other problem, too, is that I, I think is that, you know, it, and, and this continues, I think, in a lot of climbing areas. I feel like it continues here. But like the partying that goes with the climbing, you know, and, and at least oh, yeah. like hanging out and drinking and stuff. And so I'm sure that, you know, there was some feeling of like, well, we can't bring these 14 year old or 15 year old kid along because we're going to party and we're going to smoke weed and we're going to drink and like we can't have them around, you know, like that's just a, yeah. a standard kind of attitude, yeah. right? Totally. And that's kind of interesting because we got exposed into the scene quite young and I was hanging out with adults from a really young age. And by the time I moved up here, right out of high school, I was 17 mm -hmm. and I'd been hanging out with adults and I considered them, you know, I didn't have perspective. I considered these people like kind of my peers because we were all doing the same sport. Sure, sure. And, you know, I'm actually kind of out cranking them sometimes. And I'm like, oh, yeah, these are, you know, but it's totally, they're not my peers, you right. know. These are established older adults. Right. You know, so 
moving here, like I definitely didn't make as many friends with that older generation as I could have right away because I was just a punk kid, you know, like my heart was probably in the right place, but I didn't really, you know, quite clue in that, you know, you have to, even if you can climb a little bit harder, like you have to respect your elders, you know, like, so there was a little bit of that going on, but it didn't take, you know, that many years to basically have enough perspective. Did you guys get cocky? Well, I mean, Willie definitely never got cocky ever. I wouldn't think. Um, Did I? Yeah, probably. Like first moving here, not cocky, but just not respectful enough Mm -hmm. of who had come before. Right. Essentially. And but just before and still very active. Right. But slipping, you know, a little bit. (laughs) So, you know, it's like nowadays i've learned all that shit like i can fit into situations where you need to give people the respect they deserve Mm -hmm. um but i didn't have i wasn't cool enough when i was 17 to really just slide on in here right but so you grew up skiing yeah yeah totally and uh so when did like the um you know you guys were rock climbers you were kind of probably you know feeling like hot shit after a while um, these young guys that could crank and start out cranking these, these guys that have been established a little bit, but when did, um, like alpinism or the idea of going into the big mountains start to appeal to you in terms of that arc from moving up here to Squamish and, and becoming a, a pretty accomplished rock climber? Well, right away, um, before I was a serious rock climber because I was super into the literature and reading about it and climbing mountains seemed like the ultimate to me and I was always super into it but as a 13 year old you absolutely have no capacity to do that on your own and I always knew I was going to go down that road um and uh just you know takes a bit of time uh my mother's second husband was you know kind of the armchair mountaineer type and uh he kind of was my first inspiration for starting climbing he took a course with Peter Croft and Tammy Knight in Washington in the 80s. Right on. And he didn't really do tons of climbing, but he had all the books and he had some gear. And every year he'd go to the Canadian Rockies with his friends and they'd climb like, you know, mountaineering type routes. N- not technical, basically just like the descent routes on some of the bigger peaks around. And I tagged along pretty early on as a pretty young kid. And, uh, I'd just been reading freedom of the Hills and, you know, was probably less sketchy than they were, honestly. (laughs) And, (laughs) but yeah, like, you know, 12, 13, I was going and doing some mountaineering and was super into it and, uh, always knew that I wanted to do more of that kind of thing. But, you know, the Canadian Rockies, it just, I had the copy of the Sean Doherty guidebook, the Alpine Select, the Canadian Rockies, uh-huh. which had all the legendary routes in it. And that's what we were, you know, using to, you know, there's barely routes easy enough in that book for us to do, you know, we're doing the only the easiest routes in that right. book and the harder routes that just didn't seem like a, to ever make any sort of sense. Like how could you possibly ever climb that? Like there's lines up these massive, massive features and like, pitch by pitch descriptions i was like you've got to be kidding me like there's no like what are the chances you're going to find that up 
there like there's no way it just seemed impossibly Mm -hmm. huge Mm -hmm. um but i was super super curious about it from a super young age but i just didn't have the capacity to do it until about age 16 or so and my first true alpine climbing experience i took a course actually i took a an, an intro to mountaineering course around that age 13 14 and that was up near Pemberton, the mountains just north of Pemberton. And then at 16, I did my first sort of true alpine climbing attempt on the biggest peak in the Pemberton area. And it's funny because the route that we attempted to climb was totally out of our league and we bailed and it was super sketchy. And, you know, that's another story, but it, the, the feature that we were climbing on just fell off. (laughs) <laughs> like the entire mountainside just fell off like this spring. Oh, okay. Like not unlike, like super similar to the Benati pillar on the Drew. Like right. It, it really, really like so much of the mountain just fell away. And it's crazy because I spent so much time over my life cumulatively on that part of the mountain that has just now fallen off climbing and skiing and, you know, doing all sorts of stuff. But it's yeah it's fascinating but that was my first alpine attempt was 16 with a friend from high school his older brother andrew rennie uh who's now mountain guide and lives in golden and uh he was super super stoked because you know i could probably top rope 512 in the climbing gym and he's like yeah let's go and climb this route and it was totally you know beyond our capability right so despite Top roping five twelve in the gym. I guess if like, I was that wasn't 16, real, real, I could. <laughs> like it's not usually a, a real necessary. No, thing. <laughs> I guess if I was sixteen, I was probably climbing five twelve outside right, too. Right, but yeah. you know, it was. I basically we bailed. We got up to the steep crux pitches, and they're ten plus, super sandbagged, and they were wet, and I was so scared. Like I just told him, I was like, I'm terrified. We when we're going down, and on our way down, like one of our rappel anchors failed and our half of our backup anchor failed and it's like this is absolutely nuts right and yeah it was super humbling that guidebook you mentioned the alpine select alpine select that's yeah, that the one that was like also like the called the book of lies totally yeah yeah okay yeah <laughs> we use that to climb mount babel yeah and uh that's and, amazing that you did that right and, and uh you know, the East Face or whatever, yeah. the 511-ish. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. And then, like, the descent information there, like, fully benighted on oh, the yeah. descent. Like, of course. Within sight of that lodge. It's totally better just to yeah. ignore all beta in the Canadian Rockies. Yeah, I, I don't know. It was just like, turn, get to the top and go right. Honestly. And you're like, it's completely you, like these corridors of descent gullies and, like, yeah. Even, it's peculiar where humans choose to go and not go sometimes like sometimes the established way to go in the canyon rock is not always the best way to go right. it's really interesting um yeah it's it's a special place for sure so in my mind like you and will exist almost as a unit and i know that that's not like you guys are homies still but that's that's totally wrong to think of you as this unit but that's how i met you guys and I think how you established yourselves here probably was that like those are those two guys. Totally. Um, but that was a bit of a divergence um, between the two of you as far as like 
your desire to do, I think, the big the big kind of alpine gnar. Yeah. Um, I was always super into ice climbing. Right. When I got the for chance to ice climb, I was really into it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Will, not so much. He was always just super focused on rock climbing. Right. And I really like skiing and I really was interested in mountaineering and that kind of stuff. And that's why he's way better rock climber than me. Right. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's a, diversifying unless you're some super athlete. I mean, and, and certainly you guys both are, are excellent athletes, but it's hard to diversify and be the best at all of it. Like, like oh, totally. Uli was pretty close. I mean, people like that, but they're legendary for that. And, you know, Will was smart. I mean, I wish I was as focused on, actually, no, I don't like, it was admirable how focused on right. rock climbing he, he was. He's mellowing out a bit, and it's awesome. Like, we went ski touring for the first time what? this last winter together, and it was so fun. Like, it was insanely fun. Like, it was awesome, you know? And I've been waiting for that moment for a decade, you right, know? Like, right. um, so it was super cool. He's definitely trying new things these days. It's really cool to see. So you you had, a like, storied kind of series of climbs and and moments with um our mutual friend hayden kennedy for sure um well how did that start let's talk a little bit about that because a lot a lot of the big climbs i i think i know of in your in your career happened with hayden um, yeah for sure in, in i think the years in your 20s yeah yeah um i first met hayden at the international climbers meet in indian creek the first one uh-huh. and he was down there skipping high school, hanging out with Jonathan Tsenga, getting pretty drunk most nights. And I was there, but I got this super bad stomach bug. And so I just wasn't that, I was just really in a lot of pain at the time. And I just didn't have the best possible experience I could, but I met him and he was super cool. And then I ran into him again in Patagonia, showed up with Aaron Jones and I guess when they got to Shell 10, they kind of run a slightly different program. Right. And I was down there with Matt Siegel and John Gleason and those guys left and I was hanging out looking for partners and Hayden was definitely the most stoked. And I basically just stole him. And I was like, you're coming with me because I was probably one of the more stoked people there at the time, just keen to just hike in and try whenever possible. And Hayden was on the same program. So we did a lot of hiking and uh, bailing, but we eventually climbed Fitzroy together. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was amazing. It was really, really fun experience. And uh, going up and over the mountain with him, it was, seemed like really natural to climb with him. Yeah, I mean, it, it, there's some parallels, I think, with his life. And I mean, he had this, had this famous father who was an amazing climber. Um, but the fact that like he was in our town, you know, was like the young phenom and, um, you know, also generally hanging out with adults. You know, it's like I was hanging out with Hayden Kennedy as as a teenager. And and I and you were talking about how you thought like, oh, these guys were my peers. I ha- we all talk about how we had that thought about him of like, yeah, oh, yeah so he's funny. He's but, just one of us. And you're just like, oh, shit, that's right. He's 17 years old. Like, but you, you know, you can't compare <laughs> right. me and Willie to HK strictly for the fact that, you know, I thought about this a lot, obviously. And I think that 
you know, he had some incredible mentors, you know, like right. some of my life heroes were are his mentors. Yeah, like Peter Croft. Peter Croft, yeah, yeah. you know, George Lowe. Right. Come on. It's <laughs> like, hopefully the guy's going to turn out okay. Yeah. You know, and, and it's funny because I first met him and he was, you know, a few years younger and he made me feel pretty old because he was pretty young and, you know, pretty, you know, into like Wu-Tang Clan and, right. you, you know, explaining rap lyrics to me. Um, but you can imagine how we felt. How yeah, I no, felt. for sure. <laughs> but I was just so shocked at just how cool he was right. and how, you know, wise. And it kind of ruined me for recruiting other young partners in the future because, you know, until I got old enough to have perspective and just realize how special he was, mm-hmm. it was because, you know, nobody else was as cool or as wise or you know as yeah as rad as he was so right yeah well one of the things that in some ways is really foundational to this podcast is that Hayden and I talked about Saratore um not long after and it was it was like a three-hour interview where he finally kind of really laid it out there and um yeah thanks and i had convinced him to do it podcasts there weren't a thing and i had convinced him to do it based on that like this is a special medium like you can have the time and it's not sound bites and i'm going to give you the format to like really talk about what happened and what you guys believed and what you know what went down and you know i pitched it to him as, as like, look, if, if someone sits down and listens to the whole thing, even if they still disagree with you, they're not going to just be able to flame you on the internet like this is what was happening, right? Totally. And, um, and I guess it was, it was kind of theoretical in my mind, but it, it did in fact turn out that way. And, yeah. uh, you know, and so now this is like seven years later, eight years later since I recorded that. Um, you were obviously mentioned all over that thing, and yet, and now here we are finally. So I, I want to revisit that a bit sure. um, as as this part of your career as being the other guy on that trip. Yeah, totally. And, and in some ways, at least in the U.S., that's kind of how it was. You know, it was Hayden Kennedy, and then oh yeah, Jason Kruk was there too, but he got all the focus, and uh, and maybe because of that podcast. Too. I mean, yeah, it, it sort of like put him out there as the spokesperson, literally, because he was able to speak. Oh, totally. Um, so, talk a little bit about like uh, that trip and um, and sort of the yeah the decision and 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 a little just you know run us through it a little bit and then I'd like to ask you about your perspective on it seven years later as well. Yeah, sure. I mean, that trip was. It was a really, really special trip for me, and it almost didn't happen. Heyman almost bailed on that trip, and he he showed up and he he made it, and it it was just the perfect situation, you know. I it, with perspective, I realized like you know, perfect place, perfect weather, perfect partner, you know. Um, it couldn't have gotten any better, you know. We just climbed everything that we wanted to and more, and I guess. At the end, the whole, you know, topping out on the Torre, climbing it the way we wanted to, being young and super idealistic, uh, and I guess just being so fresh 
you know, being midday, it just seemed like a good decision at the time. And I definitely don't regret it now at all. I think about it, you know, quite a bit still. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, it was a crazy thing and, uh, still pretty glad it happened. I think that basically, I think the current state of climbing in the area, like I wouldn't want to place too much importance on the act, but I think that it might've restoked some people. I think it might've inspired some people to think creatively, certainly about climbing on Saratoria again. And, uh, you know, even though it, you know, we were removing some, something, this installation, this route, if you want to call it that, I, I do think that it was a positive thing overall, even though like, you know, I think that I was a pretty good person to like take the fall for that, you know, like I'm pretty chill in general. And, you know, there was definitely some dark times for sure. And it would have been easier to go really dark, but instead I actually took a really optimistic perspective and the net positive of that experience for me was it made me a truly nicer person. It didn't stress me out too much. It was kind of weird that everybody was so into it and had so many different opinions. That really blew my mind. Like, honestly, we we're really naive and so idealistic. I'm still pretty idealistic, but... Um, yeah, I mean, we're talking about like, you know, taking down uh, Maestri's compressor route and what the fallout was too. The immediate fallout was like, you know, basically being persona non grata in, in El Chaltan in, you know, getting put in jail, like for your protection, all these sorts of things. But then what you're talking about is like, yeah, the world sort of climbing world weighed in pretty heavily on this, on this whole thing. And so when you said, you know, you could have gone dark, but you, but you chose to sort of look at it more positively. Can you get any more details on like what actually happened in the, in the months after that for you? But I mean, I know what happened to Hayden, you know, he, he kind of checked out and it was, it was scary for him for a while. But again, he also sort of just stuck to his guns and said, this was, this is, we did what we, what we felt was the right thing to do. He never backed down from that either. Yeah. I mean, it was a little bit strange for me in a sense, because I was making a living as a sponsored climber at the time. And that certainly upped my profile. And it sucks because like, I didn't want my profile to be up like that. Right. You know, and suddenly all around the world, it sucks because you're like, I'm in climbing, I'm kind of known for two major things in my opinion. Uh, you know, Cedar's video and the whole Tory chopping thing. So you can kind of be known for two major things uh, and people don't, and that's kind of all your label you gets, you know? <laughs> so I was a little bit choked because, you know, I'm some bolt chopper and like it just happened one time, right? right. Um, I'm not like some vigilante that has a history of doing it. Sure. So it just happened to be fairly high profile that one time. Yeah, directly after, I guess I just looked at it in that people are just people and 
they all have their own story and I'm not going to take anything personally because it's all just them. And I realized that you can basically kill anger with kindness. And Mm -hmm. I learned that from Hayden, basically, you know, watching Hayden handle, you know, with grace, these really intense situations was a really, really good learning experience for me. And, you know, other very well-spoken, very calm people uh, were really, really helpful in helping me realize, like, you can solve conflict by just being a bro, basically, and by sitting down and talking directly with someone and being genuine, Mm -hmm. you know? And so, yeah, I learned a lot, basically, handling the the fallout of that whole thing. And it definitely... I definitely grew up a lot, you know, for sure after that. It was super crazy to have everybody have an opinion about you. And they definitely didn't know anything about you, really. And I also was a little bit like, okay, well, I'm good now. Like, probably going to get a big raise. And, you know, I can ride this out for a couple years probably. And, uh whatever, like, you know, there's definitely, it was kind of a cool thing to be known for these two, like, totally ridiculous things, because it meant, like, how am I possibly going to top that? Right. You know? (laughs) I'm like, okay, like, whatever, like, I can basically, like, am I going to leak a sex tape next? Right. What's next, right? I mean, that's like, and you're talking about the boogie to puke video of, like, climbing, getting stuck on off with hungover, shit in your pants, like. That's right. Yeah. And so... Yeah, that was me. I never really, it's funny because I, it's like, those are two different people. I know. I never put them together with Yeah. this one, like, you know, this one sort of monumental act of like mountaineering idealism and then this totally ridiculous, goofy video. That's right. And you're right. A sex tape would be the only, the only way to, only place to go from that. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, I mean, have you got one? filmed or are we no no no. i'm totally scared of the cloud i'm not down with the cloud at all yeah i'm really low tech when it comes to that stuff where did the north twin fit into that timeline was that before or after that's a good question it must have been uh right before okay and also after we i went in there twice with hayden okay and i don't really haven't really told anybody went in with him a second time um but it happened and that's kind of an interesting story a little bit light on the climbing action but kind of cool on the whole you know growing up and personal realization kind of thing our first attempt was totally hairball and just completely balls to the walls in terms of that kind of climbing so again let's let's just put it in the perspective the north face right of north twin north pillar is a, a specific route right sure um, but anyway this thing is this mammoth uh black hole face uh in the canadian rockies and um at the time you guys were trying it, it had been climbed twice yeah george lowe barry blanchard dave cheeseman i don't know who was with george on that on the other ascent um and then it been it like had sat there for i think the the Blanchard Cheeseman was probably in like late 80s, 87, something like that. Um, and then it just sat there for almost two decades at that point, yep. um, waiting for another ascent. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. Turn. I mean, it was in the Will Gad. I think the episode we just uh, we just talked about that. I actually walked in there. Yeah, I know. The idea to do it. Yeah, you told me that before. It was super absurd. But anyway, so so the first one, you guys ended up getting up a ways and then traversing off, and um, we climbed a ton of the face on our first day and got quite high, and we just. I guess didn't get quite the weather we thought we had, which mm. is pretty typical in the Canadian Rockies. It can tend to overdevelop and, you know, storm often there. And sometimes it's fairly hazardous to be on an alpine feature when it does. So it was a bit of a fight for our lives type of situation to traverse off of the face. And then there was like more snowstorm. We sort of dug out a ice coffin in the middle of the Stutfield Glacier. We we were totally lost and had no reference. And this was a pivotal moment in my mountaineering career because it's when I first realized that I could use my iPhone and the GPS would work when I didn't have cell service. <laughs> and so I did whiteout navigation for the first time ever, like descending from the Stutfield Glacier back down to that uh, Alberta glacier side uh, super super gnarly ice fall uh, and i basically used my iphone for the first time as a navigation tool uh-huh. you know we still had a map and a compass but it totally saved us because we're in this ice cap glacier total no reference situation you know without it we who knows how long we would have had to wait probably but it was interesting yeah and then we actually got down onto the glacier and by that point it was spring and super isothermic in the afternoons and we were basically swimming nuts deep in faceted snow making super slow progress up the side you have little alberta towards our stuff and then hiking out and a grizzly bear ambled down from woolly shoulder onto the glacier in front of us and we felt like so trapped because it was moving on all fours and just kind of ambling around making good speed. And we're basically swimming up glacier and Hayden had just come from Alaska where he had had another grizzly bear encounter two weeks prior. So he was pissed. Like he was so pissed. And all I did was put on my climbing helmet and take up my ice tools and just try and wade up the side of the mountain slope beside us. And we just watched like the grizzly bear kind of amble around and eventually disappear over the next pass. But it was pretty crazy um, experience. And that's the first trip. That was the first trip. That was all on the first trip. All on the first trip. And you were like, all right, let's do it again. Yeah, well, I went back. That was in the spring and it was difficult dry tooling and mixed climbing, I guess. Right. And yeah, it was pretty full on, but... I was super motivated to climb it and I went back the following fall with John Walsh and we actually went in to try the Twins Tower on September 11th, which is should have been a warning for us. It's mm-hmm. kind of an ominous date to be climbing a feature like named that, which is notoriously, you know, ominous. But uh, we got to a similar height, maybe a little bit higher, climbing on the Blanchard Cheeseman side because it was the fall, so it was drier. And then John got whacked and broke his foot, basically. And so we tried to continue climbing up, because it seemed 
easier than repelling, you know, a vertical kilometer of choss. Yeah, like the worst rock. Well, yes and no. Like, right. there's definitely pitches up there that are amazing, like vertical to overhanging hand cracks that end with, you know, perfect in-cut edges to the next cracks. It's like, there is some amazing climbing up there. There's also some of the absolute most heinous, like pull and pray on every single hold pitches like you could climb. Like there's everything in between up there. It's massive, but descending it just seemed like so crazy. My friends, Ian Wellstead and Chris Brazo had tried it previously and, and Ian had broken his arm in rockfall. And so we found a couple of their anchors on the way down, but uh, basically we just, instead of traversing off, we were committed to just repelling the entire face from, you know, over a kilometer up the thing. So yeah, two trips there and climbed a ton on the wall and didn't actually make it to the top. I probably should have just called it good, but I went back a third time with Hayden quite a bit later. I was actually surprised. I never thought I'd get the chance to, you know, I kind of written it off. It was always at the top of my list in terms of things that I wanted to climb. And I just didn't think John went on to climb it, uh, with Josh Wharton. I didn't want to climb it in the fall again. I didn't want to try it again in the fall. It seemed technically easier to rock climb it, but it just seemed so much sketchier. Mm -hmm. So I was really, really wanted to climb it in the spring and I wasn't around anyways. I was busy and I was really stoked when John got to climb it with Josh. And talking to Josh, you know, it must have been hardcore because, you know, he's no slouch. Right, 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 um, right. Yeah. He was quite moved, I think, by the experience. And uh, I think they had a really, really good adventure. And I'm really happy that they climbed it. It's perfect. I'm so happy that John managed to climb it. And I'm glad I wasn't a part of that because... You know, I didn't really want to climb it again in that season. I was more convinced that climbing in the spring was the way to go in terms of safety. And also just I thought it was kind of cooler. It just looks super badass when it's plastered with ice and seems safer, but it's hard to align with a partner that's on the same wavelength for that kind of thing. So i have written it off. Hayden was in and out of alpine climbing, which you know, at the time was frustrating because I just wanted to partner and he would bail on tons of our ideas and trips, which in looking back now, I'm like, that was so awesome and smart. And one of the <laughs> things that, you know, I really learned was a strength of his, but it sure was frustrating. And it really actually drove a small wedge between us because I was so, so into going on these alpine climbing trips sure. and uh, he was kind of flaky about it. You know, I was so happy and surprised when out of the blue, he's like, dude, I'm in, let's twin. Like if there's a window for the spring, like call me up, I'm driving up and let's do it. And so I just kind of did my weather thing all season and I didn't expect to get a window because there's rarely a good enough window you know, not, there's not a good enough window in my opinion every year to climb on that thing. So your chances of actually getting a window are slim. And I was like, oh yeah, well, this will probably never happen. And I was shocked when I was like, oh shit, I think that this could be a good chance. 
and we drove and met together and hiked in and got to the base of the wall and I was pretty stoked and I just started vomiting uncontrollably. I thought I was stoked, but I was clearly had something going on. Like I just started projectile vomiting uncontrollably at the base of the wall. And, um, and I was like, you know what, actually, I don't think that we should go up there. And I'm really sorry, like Mm -hmm. basically. And why don't we go and try and climb something more mellow? And Hayden's like, you know what, actually, let's just pack up and leave and go sport climbing. Like that sounds way better. And I was like, no, well, like, let's at least do something in the mountains, you know, some alpine route, like let's maybe not climb the twin, but there's lots of other things around here we could climb. And he's like, no, no, we just have to honor this and let's just go. Like, I'm, I'm happy. Like, let's just, you know, we have to pay attention to what just happened here. Like you just vomited all over the place at the base of the mountain. Like you clearly don't have this. And so we basically left and went sport climbing together. And it was interesting because a little while later, we kind of got into it one day, like kind of got deep. Basically, we, because I was so soul focused, I wasn't always the best friend and didn't always stay super, you know, connected with this guy who, you know, was one of my very best friends, you know? Um, and so he kind of called me out on it one time and, uh, and I was like, dude, I'm sorry. I'm just kind of on my own program. Like, and I know you are too. And it's like, I don't actually always do the best job at, you know, connecting with my bros. You know, I, I, yeah, I'm a bit of a lone wolf sometimes because I just want to get the job done. So, you know, you kind of have to be on your own program. And so I apologized and, you know, he, he mentioned that, that trip to the twin. And he said that that was probably like our most important trip together that we ever did was just like honoring that, you know, instinct, not having to climb at all and just going sport climbing. And it's, like now I'm just like, why didn't I ever just go on a sport climbing trip with him? You know, like, why didn't I do that? Why did I try and just be so obsessed with climbing hard mountains, you know? say check check yeah so i mean you miss him we both miss him yeah for sure there's the hayden yeah to hayden definitely loved the kokanee <laughs> yeah he did <laughs> Oops. um yeah but your own uh your own kind of climbing evolution um and maybe I'm wrong about this, but it seems like there's there was also a bit of a decision or or at least you 
you know, tamp that down a bit, this obsession with, with alpine climbing um, to a certain extent. Uh, is, that, is that accurate or is that, well, or how do you see your, your evolution with climbing and moving into flying and, and doing a bunch of other um, sort of mountain sports? Sure. Well, it all kind of flows together and I never really let my focus drift from climbing mountains. Um, it's always been there. I did my last uh, trip to the Himalaya in 2016. And uh, then, you know, 2017 was a pretty rough year. And I didn't have the motivation to do that kind of thing since. But the motivation's back, like to go on a trip to the Himalaya, like I'm going to India this fall. So looking forward to that. But I'm not going on like a alpine climbing trip this time, going on more of a reconnaissance type of trip just to kind of build experience and, you know, more familiarity with uh, other ways of climbing in the mountains than I've done before. Sort of more creative. I know I'm being vague, but just sort of more creative ways instead of just in pursuit of, you know, the hardest difficulty, most radical thing. You know, I, I'm just trying to look at mountains with a little bit more creativity and how can we sort of maximize the potential of these things and maybe not always have to subject ourselves to the maximum amount of risk just to kind of push the envelope or doing something new, you know? So that's kind of more, more what I'm interested in these days is getting a little bit more creative, doing things a little bit differently and not just in pursuit of pure difficulty, mm -hmm. you know, that happens, you know, that's a byproduct of climbing a rad line. You know, sometimes it's difficult, but too often like difficulty in the mountains comes with a lot of risk and danger. And I'm not super into that anymore. I'm not a against it. Like, I don't think everybody should stop climbing dangerous routes, but it's not what I'm super stoked on anymore. Right. To tell you the truth. You know, I think about climbing like an 8,000 meter peak, you know, that definitely interests me, but it would have to be a really unique idea basically. And I could easily not do it. You know, I'm just interested in doing really creative things in the mountains that make sense to me mm -hmm. on my own terms. And I don't want to have to explain them to anyone, really. Which... <laughs> this is the enormous cast. You have to... Ex no, I'm just No, kidding. no. I mean... <laughs> uh, can you talk a little bit about the evolution of that thinking? Um, sure. Because you were that guy. Totally. I mean, the hardest thing... Like, the twin. I mean, yeah, before yeah. Before it got repeated, you, like I said, it sat there as basically the hardest thing in the Rockies. No. For the longest time. You no, know? for sure. And, you know, there was other things like that that certainly were in that ideal, but I guess I kind of realized that it was not bullshit, but kind of silly. A lot of it's so arbitrary and made up and depending on your experience in that moment on that day mm. and trying to compare it is ridiculous. So I stopped basically. I was always really into ice climbing and around here the ice is, forms up 
so quickly and often in new places. So we always do tons of first ascents every year. And I, I, I realized it, there was pointless to try and record these things or track them. And it was against the spirit of why I like to go out and search for them in the first place. And that's ice climbing. If you expand that into climbing in mountains, it made sense for me to just take more of an adventurous approach and have it just for me because trying to explain my experience to, you know, a, the mainstream audience was just crazy. When my friend Josh Levine and I went in and climbed the north face of Mount Alberta, that to me was a real high note in my career in terms of the perfect ascent for us at the time. And it was such a wild experience and so meaningful. And I was at a loss of how to really explain to people how important it was. Because one of the things that made it cool for me was I think, I don't know if I sandbagged Josh, I think he's just a chill dude and super talented. So he was good to go. But I think he expected me to know a little bit more about the face beta wise than I did. <laughs> I just really wanted the pure adventure experience. So we went in like with zero beta whatsoever. Like it was really cool because we just got to approach the thing and you can't really get a good view until you're underneath it with totally fresh virgin eyes. We just got to climb the thing and just live in the moment and have the perfect experience. And the result was, I know, an awesome route that was, you know, exceeded all expectations. It was the perfect adventure. And uh, I couldn't really explain just how important it was to the mainstream. And I just didn't really want to. And that was kind of the beginning of it. And along with, you know, the fickle dynamic nature of the ice conditions around here and, you know, what constitutes a real first descent and what, like, what is the purpose of recording this? Like, are we adding to some sort of collective that is important or are we just robbing the future of their own adventure and experience? Like part of the reason why I like this stuff is the hunt and posting about it on the internet really is just satisfying your ego a lot of the time, you know? And so I was in direct conflict between my job as a sponsored climber and where my heart was with what I loved about what I did in the mountains. So it was interesting. It was just kind of headed that way for me. And I was in a really, really awesome place, really fortunate position with Arteryx. I was in a really sweet spot with the company where they were really, really focused on design and building really awesome gear and not super into marketing. And then they grew and kind of had some money. And, you know, Will and myself and some others were kind of senior athletes with a lot of seniority, uh, but we we're still young and still getting after it. So, you know, we started to make enough money to kind of sustain my lifestyle and be a professional climber. And I realized that if I was going to do it, like I just needed to do it and be a real pro. And so I, I thought it was a good opportunity. This company was growing and there was suddenly more marketing dollars and we were in a really happy spot where there wasn't that much expectation. 
and there was more money and still not that much expectation and more money. And it was just a really good time, you know, <laughs> to be involved in, you know, a core brand. Um, I feel really fortunate and they had a lot of faith in what I was doing, even though I wasn't super on the ball with constant, you know, media exposure because they were local and I was always out doing things around here and elsewhere. Like I, I just had this local connection. They always knew that I was getting after it. Right. You know, I also had this total distrust after early experiences with climbing magazines and some of the media stuff, you know, you kind of have to, like I'm way too idealistic for, for that job as a sponsored athlete. I was doomed from the beginning, you know, mm -hmm. and I had some funny meetings like later on in my career with some higher ups and, and they're just like so shocked that I wanted to even do the job when they got to know me. They're like, really? Like you really want to do this? Okay. I just didn't really fit the job description, but I was in such a sweet position in Arteryx that I couldn't not do it. Right. You know? So yeah, it was just a total conflict basically. And, uh, you know, I had my role model of Hayden kind of as a real ideal of how to handle the outdoor industry with, you know, a fair amount of grace. And, uh, I was, yeah, just kind of, it just wasn't for me, man, but I, I was getting away with a lot, you know? So, you know, I, I think in, in some ways, especially when you started, you know, you and Will started climbing, there suddenly was a path to being a professional climber. Oh, sure. You know, uh, it was post somebody like, even like Chris Sharma, like there, there was a path now, which I think maybe one little step before you guys, it wasn't super clear. For us, right? it was Sonny, right? Yeah. Like he was our guy, right. like it was hanging out with Sonny. He made it possible for us, right. basically. Right. There was some other sponsored climbers around here mm -hmm. that were definitely the established sponsored climbers, but they weren't like getting... Scott. yeah. They weren't getting... Well, yeah. like uh, Matt Mataloni, okay. Andrew Boyd, you know? Right. These guys were super good, but they weren't making a living, really, right. from it. It was really sunny for us Canadians that was like, oh, yeah, you know, we could probably make this work, maybe... Yeah, but I mean, it, so it's this ideal, like, oh, I, I mean, I think a lot of climbers think of it as the ideal, like you were saying, like, I'm just getting after it, they're not really expecting much from me, but in the end, you know, you, I mean, what you're getting at is you bailed. Oh, yeah, yeah. I had to, yeah, yeah I mean, uh, like, I was not super in touch with reality of the situation, you know, the company's getting so much more corporate, and I just can't really stick to my guns of... I'm an artist, just let me tinker away and just trust me. And right. I don't have to deal with the media because I'm above the media. Right. And the media is just lies. And, you know, it's like I, I was just I wanted to create my perfect little role within the company that just didn't really exist for me, mm -hmm. you know. And I was trying to hopefully steer things a little bit from behind the ship instead of having to be out. Like I felt like I was gaining all of this experience, not only in the outdoor industry, but in the mountains doing all the stuff I was doing, getting after it full time. I could be useful in this company if somehow. I just don't want to really feel like a total sellout or whatever. 
And eventually, I was already kind of thinking I was probably going to bail, but it was really Hayden's passing when I was like, okay, I'm definitely out. Like, this is definitely not for me. And uh, it's important to remember that I had a really, really sweet job. I made so much more money than I probably deserved, and I didn't make that much. My contracts were pretty (laughs) darn sweet. Like, honestly, dude, my friends, a lot of them were sponsored, and I kind of know what they make, and I'm shocked, basically, at the price. So it just didn't add up. We live in a super, super expensive part of the world to live in, and I wasn't saving much money, and I was feeling like a real sellout. And I didn't think the sum of what I was doing was a net positive. Mm -hmm. So I just had to make a big change, you know? And yeah, I kind of didn't want to feel like I was influencing people down the wrong path anymore. Like there's so many other things you can do to add value to climbing to the outdoor industry. That's not becoming a sponsored athlete. And there's probably a better, like if you want an office job, become a sponsored athlete. You know, if you like writing emails, become a sponsored athlete, <laughs> you know, <Right>. like <laughs> it, it's kind of the truth, right? you know, you know, if you're beholden to a certain lifestyle, it, I don't know, you can feel trapped basically. Mm-hmm. And I definitely felt trapped. And now I feel much more free as somebody that can work and earn money and then spend it on whatever the hell I want. And I like the fact that I can just be super under the radar and do whatever I want and not have to explain myself to anyone. So it suits me way better, Mm -hmm. you know, not having to be popular in the mainstream totally suits me because I think to really add value to community, say a climbing community, it's not about mainstream appeal. It's more about being a real, uh, you know, hero in your community you know like that's what i'm going for like i'm i just want to reach out and be a bro to as many people one-on-one as i can give the 14 year old kid a ride to squamish totally you know (laughs) like that's actually how i think that i can contribute basically is one-on-one connections and interactions because that shit spreads you know and that's way better than any sort of mass appeal and recognition yeah just be happier basically so you you kind of sped by this you know joking or half joking about arcteryx and i want to tinker and i want to do my art and and you've always struck me as someone that approaches i mean life you've you've got i think you've got sort of uh um an artistic eye and you've approached climbing that way and part of that though i think is sharing with you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna approach life that way, then art needs to be shared. So oh, to totally. Speak. You know, so how do you find that balance, like of like? Oh man! I mean, here you are on the Norma Cast. I, I really wanted to have you on because um, you're you're a bridge to Hayden. I mean, you did did these amazing things with him, and so from my personal interests, I've always wanted to talk to you about that. But um, yeah, so I mean, what is the what is the balance for you with with this idea of? I just think expressing yourself. I just think that there's no real rush to get it out there. The pace of the media these days is just not for me. It's 
you know, the turnover of the news cycle is crazy. Mm -hmm. So having these experiences shaping them, yeah, maybe it's for me, but also it makes me a better person and able to help out in the world around me a little mm -hmm. bit more effectively. So you're right. Like I really struggled with this. Like my last trip as a sponsored athlete, major climbing expedition was amazing. Like it was one of the most incredible adventures of my life. We went so deep and it was awesome. We basically went to the center of the Garwal Himalaya to climb the biggest possible thing we could. And nobody knows about it because I couldn't figure out how to tell it the story meaningfully. And I was just waiting. Mm -hmm. And yeah, your sponsors aren't stoked when you just wait <laughs> for years. Right. You know, but it's still meaningful. And if climbing's my art or the mountains are my art, then just looking at one piece out of context does nothing. You have to sort of consider everything within context among a broader work, you know, body of work rather. So there's no real rush to get my story out there. Like I have nothing to prove anymore. I have nothing to sell anymore. And that shaped me and it's a part of me. And I think that there's definitely some things that people would be stoked on and can take away from that trip. And, you know, like I'm probably going to write a book real soon, you know, at least like one, probably okay, a that bunch. Was my next, I mean, that was my next question is, and that's kind of what I'm getting at. Then there, there is the, there is the definitely the, the, the archetype or whatever you might call it of the, the person who does the thing and then, and no one ever knows. Sure. I just have, I just don't see you as that person. And so that's, I guess that's what I'm trying to like figure out. Like yeah, when do we, that's interesting. when do you express yourself? Because again, you know, and it's a little cliche to say, oh, it's art or whatever, but whatever you want to call it, in my mind, it only becomes that once it's shared. You know what I mean? Sure. You know, and, and if we tear open, you know, your house and after you're gone and find pictures in the walls, it's still been shared. Totally. Until it, until it is, is created. You know what I mean? And so it's like, that's what kind of what I'm like, wh where's your head going with how, how we will... Yeah, I am motivated. Get these things shared. I'm motivated for some of that, but honestly, I am like a Canadian and pretty chill. <laughs> Canadians write books and stuff. Yeah, I know, but <laughs> right. Honestly, I've got a really good life and uh, a really good lifestyle, you know. And um, I I don't really have anything to prove or sell. And so, although the concept of writing a book seems overwhelming, like, I know I have to do it. Like, I just know, and, and I actually, writing, like, the book just seems totally overwhelming. I think it's better to just start writing, and I could write a bunch of books, you know, if I need to, shorter books. <laughs> but, like, just start writing and get it out there, mm -hmm. because you're right, it's kind of, like... A, not selfish, but like, I want to eloquently and gracefully explain what it is I get up to. Right. Like, I don't care about being the best or right. whatever, selling anything anymore. Like, I don't care about that at all because I've structured my life now where I don't need to do any of that shit. 
you know? I definitely feel like, you know, as my peers are dying all around me, like, I should probably get some of this shit out because when I was younger, reading books was life-changing, mm-hmm. you know? And even if I don't have any aspirations of writing a successful book or like a book that anybody reads, like a popular book, like I don't care, but I think that maybe it could probably help some people, you know? Right. Yeah. That's kind of where I'm, I'm thinking, you know, I don't want any to be involved with any sort of like fast disposable media anymore. That's not my bag. I'm more interested in, yeah, maybe, yeah, a, a book for sure. Well, the Enormacast will last forever on the internet. So this is this is your, your for, for now until this book comes out. This is like your uh, your testament right here. What we've done tonight. Oh, cool. So, um, but in all seriousness, thanks for sitting down, man. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I'm was, so happy you made it Squamish. Yeah, that was awesome. Yeah, it's been good to see you again. Yeah, for sure. Likewise. All right, folks, thanks for listening, and thanks to Jason for help making that happen. Once again, it was great to see him sit down for a, for a chat where I learned a lot, not just about Jason, but his relationship with my friend Hayden. Uh, yeah, it was, it was uh, enlightening, and I hope you guys enjoyed it. And remember, none of our time together is guaranteed, so cherish those moments and climbs that you have with your friends create great memories because you know someday that might be all you have left Ooh, going a little bit dark all right happy holidays everybody and of course remember to check your knots man check those knots all of them come far pilgrim Feels like far. Were it worth the trouble? Huh? What trouble?